Part Two, Chapter Eleven, of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank, by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Eleven, Crossing the Potomac on a Raft. A short ride, and I reached Washington Station, from which place I took horse cars for Frederick City, five miles distant. When nearly there, an infantryman entered, notebook in hand. At first. I mistook him for a baggage agent, but instead of wanting to check my trunk, his object was to check me if he could. He noted the name of every passenger, who they were, how long they intended to stay, their destination, their business, etc. Now if I had told the truth, I would have been marched off in the twinkling of an eye. Even the embryo father of his country would have prevaricated in a case like this. So I assured him that I had been born in Frederick City, raised there, lived there all my life, and had never left there except in this instance, when I had run over to Baltimore to see the sights, and was just returning. Where is your pass? Oh, I left it at home. Everybody knows me here. Then report at the provost marshal's immediately on your arrival, was the curt rejoinder. Now I had a constitutional and natural antipathy to that particular class of officers, and would rather charge a battery any day than be interrogated by them or be asked to grant the little request with which so many poor privates found it impossible to comply. Show your passports. Hence I told him that if he would examine the provost's books he would discover my name already registered. This seemed to satisfy him, for he answered, All right, took down my name, and passed on to the next passenger. A devilish close shave, I thought. Reaching the town, I proceeded to the hotel and registered a fictitious name, giving my residence as Hagerstown, Maryland, and after a hearty dinner went down the street to buy several little articles which I desired to carry back south. The most important purchase was a pair of spurs, for which I hoped to have pressing need before the night ended. In the evening I called upon two southern sympathizers whose name had been given me in Baltimore, and whose patriotism was cheap, resembling those very low-priced prints warranted fast, yet which never wash without fading. They were afraid to talk, declined even to give advice as to the best way to cross the Potomac, and actually refused to furnish any information with regard to the routes and roads to the fords. I unbosomed my mind, and used no measured terms or epithets either, then left, thinking an honest foe better than a cowardly sympathizer. In the evening I walked the streets for hours, having concluded the safest thing would be to mount the first army horse I could find, and strike for some upper ford in the river. But there were no such horses to be seen. The property of citizens I respected too much to touch, though a year later I would have been less conscientious in such an emergency. In wretchedly low spirits I left town. It was about ten o'clock and very dark. I had intended crossing the river at Wright's Ford, which a negro had informed me was the nearest crossing place, but in the obscurity of the night I lost the way and wandered only God knows where. For hours, through swamps, woods, fields, and meadows I stumbled, falling into deep holes, scrambling out as best I could, feeling my way out of forests, and forcing a path through briars until I was nearly dead from exhaustion. My clothes were torn, face scratched, hands bleeding. Finally, after having struggled and strayed nearly all night, I struck a road, 
and following it up came to a small house, whose owner I roused by a sturdy knocking at the door. He soon appeared, light in hand. I had my tail cut and dried, and informed him I had an uncle on the other side of the Potomac who was expected to die, and it was of the utmost importance I should get across the river at once. He directed me to follow the road running near the house for about twelve miles farther on, to a large brick edifice called Greenleaf's Mill, the owner of which could put me in a way to cross. It was still dark, and very hard to keep the road, but soon day broke. The sun rose, and I pushed forward with vigor. The owner of Greenleaf's Mill proved to be a good friend indeed to the cause. He gave its needy representative a good hot breakfast, and let me sleep undisturbed in the house all the long day until five o'clock in the evening. Then after a hearty supper his guests stood ready to follow out the enterprise. The miller was afraid to give any advice, for he said if trouble should come he did not want to think it would be attributable to counsel of his. He declared he could not believe my story, since United States detectives had been lately roaming through that immediate section, passing themselves off as escaped rebel prisoners, appealing to the sympathies of the people, and using every cunning device to make them commit themselves. If successful, their beguiled victims were immediately arrested, and either forced to take the oath of allegiance or suffer a long imprisonment. Consequently, all entreaties could only induce the cautious miller to give his departing guest the name of but one successionist who lived four miles farther on. I commenced walking, and in an hour reached the designated house. The owner was absent, but his wife civilly invited me in. She was evidently suspicious, and thought her visitor exactly what he was not. Her husband, she said, had gone to a horse race, and would not be back for hours. They were honest, industrious people, she informed me, and good union folks, too she took the trouble to add. The worthy woman tried her best to carry out the role, and made her bright, interesting little daughter of some twelve summers sing for the edification of the supposed detective, just before the battle mother, and the star-spangled banner. Finding the hostess and her husband were Irish, I revealed my secret, but the revelation had only the effect of adding, Hail Columbia, and will hang Jeff Davis to a sour apple tree, to the already loyal repertoire. So the time passed listening to these patriotic ditties and other Union sentiments, when sure enough, about ten o'clock, the husband returned from the race, singing in the joy of his heart the sprig of shamrock, and if the truth must be told, as tight as a brick. His wife introduced the stranger as a Confederate soldier escaped from Washington, at the same time, by sundry winks and signs, trying to make him understand it were well to be on his guard but a wink is no better than a nod to a blind horse. Whatever acumen the lord of her bosom was apt to events in general, verily he had none then which liquor had not deadened, for all his natural feelings bubbled up. Grasping the hands of his guest, with real Hibernian warmth, he bade me welcome, and more than welcome, nay, the whole house was mine. He loved the gray, bedad. He had a son in the Twelfth Virginia Cavalry, as fine a sprig of a boy as ever breathed the breath of life, and he did not care a darn who knew it. This frank avowal thoroughly frightened the more politic wife, who began to make hurried and nervous excuses, declaring he was drunk and did not know what he was talking about. But her smaller half broke in impetuously upon this caution, with the remark that the pride of his life was that his only boy was a rebel and in the southern army, and he'd be there himself, bedad, if he wasn't so old.' 
this assertion left the wife not a single plank to stand upon and she did what a woman generally does under such circumstances burst into tears we hastened to assure her that her alarm was groundless that we would be as loath to meet a yankee detective at this moment as we would his satanic majesty himself i showed my gray jacket and by a little reasoning convinced her that so far from being the loyal spy she thought i was an honest rebel soldier whose sole desire was to get over the river with all possible speed the tears were dried the songs renewed but this time they were dixie and the bonnie blue flag sung to by the same innocent lips which but an hour ago caroled immaculate union ones this only proves however that circumstances alter cases and that women are born actresses and can rise to the level of all emergencies the jovial host opened several bottles of homemade wine and insisted on drinking toasts illustrative of his feelings and that too so continuously that midnight found me still passing what mr swiveller would call the rosy on retiring to rest he brought me an ancient sword of the size shape and general appearance of a scythe blade which hung up over the bed so in case of a morning foray the old war relic might prove handy it was a terrible weapon according to our host and had committed great execution in the hands of his grandfather in the great irish rebellion of ninety eight with it near no one would dare attack and before harm could come to me it would be necessary to cross over his dead body and then he bade me good night or rather good morning and retired after a few hours sleep and a hearty meal i was ready for anything a neighbor had dropped in who heard the story and gave in return the benefit of his advice there was a certain negro living not far away on the banks who would ferry me over the river for ten dollars and it would be as well and safest to avail myself of his services not content with showing so much kindness the true-hearted entertainer insisted on going a part of the way and pointing out the different fords we went first to the aqueduct on the monocacy creek but found it heavily guarded no persons were allowed to pass save those with passports from the provost nothing now remained but to wade across the run so making a detour of a mile or so i rolled up my pants to attempt it so soon as you get across said the irish friend go to the village nearby called slicksville and buy ten yards of rope and a hatchet and if you can't find the darky with a squint in his eye to row you over build a raft and paddle across in that way shaking him warmly by the hand i started to cross the creek which emptied into the river at right angles the water was at freezing point and about four feet deep it was necessary to wade nearly a hundred yards to gain the opposite shore i emerged blue and numbed with cold as i turned to take a parting look there stood the kind-hearted fellow waving his handkerchief in a last token of farewell a noble heart beat in that man's bosom on my way to slicksville i met a farmer who informed me that he had just left the village and that there were two detectives in the place knowing that certain capture would ensue should i venture near i branched off the road leading there and striking the towpath of the canal walked heedlessly along not knowing what next to do or where to go the canal was parallel with the river in fact on its very brink but it had been constructed on the crest of the hill while the river rushed along at the bottom some seventy feet below keeping on i came across an abandoned canal boat which lay in the dry bed of the stately old ditch whose waters had been turned off since the beginning of the war 
the craft had been deserted of course and by a happy inspiration the idea flashed across my mind that out of the idle timbers a raft might be constructed upon which to cross the river before starting to work i scouted around to find if there were any enemies near i learned that the nearest picket was at monocacy about a mile below where there was a blockhouse garrisoned by a command called scott's nine hundred who if the citizens of the vicinity were to be believed was as errant a set of thieves as ever plundered a hen-roost or stole linen from a hedge about five o'clock that cold evening february the seventeenth eighteen sixty four i commenced constructing the raft the canal boat had been moored at the time it had been abandoned and fastened to stakes driven down in either bank by two large ropes one at the bow and the other at the stern the ropes were the very things that were needed but then i had no knife with which to cut them however i was not to be deterred by such a trifle as that even if i had been obliged to emulate the example of the rats and gnaw them in two yes though they had been cables three inches in diameter i was bound to have those ropes at all costs so i hunted around and found a treasure in a piece of an old rusty iron hoop which being broken in sections and sharpened on a stone made a knife that answered every purpose with it both lines were cut and with cold stiffened fingers i set to work to unravel them this consumed about an hour and then i found myself in possession of six small inch ropes about fifteen feet long or nearly thirty yards altogether more than enough to bind the largest raft it was night when this work was done it was stinging cold and i had neither overcoat nor blanket the next step was to construct a bridge from the boat to the towpath which was accomplished by placing in the bottom of the canal about six feet apart two high stools or wooden horses as they are called on the boat on which rested planks and beams thus was formed an easy transit from the craft to the path obviating the necessity of jumping down to the bed of the canal and then climbing up the bank every time a move was made from one to the other the bridge having been finished i concluded from very weariness to postpone further operations until morning so descending into the deserted cabin a little close hole about the size of a big dry goods box and groping about in the dark to find some place in which to sleep i finally climbed into a bunk there i encountered an old mattress about as soft and pliable as sheet iron and a quantity of rags which might have been a quilt or coverlid before the flood the smell of it phew it took the breath away i jumped out in a hurry and went on deck there the bitter icy wind was sweeping and i had either to freeze or return to yon combination of foul odors which would have done credit to a patent phosphate fertilizing factory on a hot summer day i chose the latter went back and laid down on the mattress and got under the filthy rags and with hands clasped tightly over my face thought of damask roses and the spices of araby at the dawn of day i awoke and going out on deck breathed the pure air once more i commenced work with a will tearing the large wooden covers off the apertures in the deck and carrying them across the improvised bridge to the bank they were pitched down the steep slope to the river edge a quantity of loose planks were laying around as well as nails so that by forenoon there was a large pile of lumber collected several times during the morning i came within an ace of being caught once i was just about to hammer out some nails from a piece of timber on the shore 
when by a sort of uncontrollable impulse I stopped and crept up the bank. On reaching the top I had hardly time to conceal myself before half a dozen bluecoats passed along the towpath, so close indeed that I could have touched them with outstretched hand. About ten o'clock the raft was finished which was to bear me across the water, fortune as dear to me as Caesar's to himself and country. I determined to start at once. Grasping the improvised paddle, I was about to maffle off, when several citizens riding by on the towpath above saw me, and jumping from their horses, pulled the raft back. I indignantly asked what was meant. One of the citizens replied that the canal boat belonged to him, and he wanted to know who I was, where I was going, and by what right I proposed helping myself to his lumber. It was useless to attempt to deceive him. Caught flagrant delecto, so I made a virtue of necessity, owned the truth, and asked for help. No, sir, he said, I am a loyal man. I cannot help you, but I won't betray you. My advice is that you go to the nearest garrison, give yourself up, and take the oath of allegiance. My only reply was a bitter curse, which could not have been mistaken as otherwise than a most emphatic denial. Well, anyhow, he resumed, I cannot let this raft go. There's fully twenty-five dollars worth of timber here. Well, said I, if you set the liberty and happiness of a fellow man against the sum of twenty-five dollars, there is nothing more to be said. I never overrated myself, but I hoped that I could bring more than that sum. Here is your twenty-five dollars, every cent I have in the world. Take it, but I am going to cross the river tonight if I have to swim. This seemed to touch his companions, who demurred against his accepting the money, so he refused the proffer and said with further generosity, You may have the plank, but if you try to cross the river before dark you will be killed to a certainty, for as soon as you reach the middle of the stream you will be in musket range of our soldiers and they will pick you off as they would a wild duck floating on the water. This struck me as being a solemn fact and fortunate indeed it was that he had come up on the moment of departure and prevented the maddest step that could have been taken. You can try it if you are bent upon it, but take my advice and don't make the attempt until dark, still urged the owner of the raft as the party remounted and rode off. There were yet several hours of light, so after a mental consultation I thought I had better lie low even though I was fighting hungry. I went within the cabin and fastened the door intending to get some sleep, but in a short time was aroused by someone trying to effect an entrance. I was on my feet in a second, and as quick as thought had squeezed through the stern window, about twelve inches square, but then I was thin, very thin, and climbed the bank. I then found the intruder was a young country fellow, a coarse-looking rustic, who, being gifted with an inquiring mind, was on a voyage of discovery. Leaving him to pursue his investigations undisturbed, I walked leisurely up the path, intending to return when his labors were ended and his departure taken. I had not proceeded far, when hearing a noise in the rear, I looked and beheld two Yankee cavalrymen riding down the path at a gallop. The game is up, I thought. But no, they approached with a rush, with no thought of drawing rein. We cheered them as they passed, for they were only trying their horses in a little private scrub race. Surely, thought I, after so many narrow escapes and providential interposition, my efforts must be crowned with success. I fell to discussing the chances for and against my ultimate good fortune. I thought of the French philosopher who, being in a maze of doubt regarding the immortality of the soul, 
and wandering in a labyrinth of speculation, determined to solve the question by a method altogether unique in ethics. He prepared to throw a stone at a tree. If I strike, I believe. If I miss, I'm eternally a skeptic. So he fired away, struck, and had an easy conscience and a firm faith ever afterwards. This determined me to try my fortune by the same novel, yet decisive mode for consolation. My faith was below par then. The chances against success were heavy, the danger close, so I chose a tree and selected a stone. If I strike that tree, I will some day reach Virginia safe and sound. If I miss it, then either captivity or death will be my portion. Taking off my jacket, and looking straight at the trunk of the lordly oak some twenty paces off, I drew back with every muscle braced, and stood ready to cast the die. Surely little David, when he put the pebble in the sling to hurl at big Goliath, never felt more acutely, or eagerly, the momentous results depending upon the flight of the stone. The rock sailed through the air, and the tree was struck plumb in the center. As apparently trivial, childish as this act was, it instilled in my mind a profound conviction of ultimate success. A confidence so firm that even in the darkest hour, and amid all scenes, surrounded by lines of steel, environed by massive walls of granite, my faith remained staunch and firm. By constant brooding upon the subject, I felt as would the warriors of ancient Greece had they heard the decrees of fate pronounced by the oracle itself. Many, many times, when suffering the pangs of hunger and cold, when ill-treated and trodden upon, when life itself became a thing of no value, when despair stood ready to counsel apathetic submission to an apparently irresistible destiny, did the memory of that tree-test come back, and nerve the almost helpless heart to stern endurance and greater efforts. It was superstition, yes, but a superstition whose faith was as strong as that of religions a superstition whose power was potent for all good. At last the sun went down, and the gray shades of evening fell upon the scene, dimming all views, merging all objects and colors into one dull opaque mass. Untying the raft, I stepped in and shoved off. It was about ten feet square, and bore the burden well. It progressed swimmingly until it reached the current twenty yards from shore, the river, about two hundred yards wide at this point, was running like a mill-race. The water foamed and bubbled, speeding down with a seething rush and roar. The current caught the broad, unwielding craft and sported with it at its own wild pleasure, spun it around and round despite my frantic efforts to guide it. It shot suddenly forward, then became entangled in a whirlpool and twirled like a top. I battled wildly to guide its course, but it was no use. The waters were having their own way, and were making a high old jest of it. The swift, tumultuous current tossed the raft as if it were the merest chip, dashed it here and there like a bubble on the surface. Wet with perspiration, and with aching muscles, I strove more and more to stem the tide and at least shape its course to the opposite shore. All in vain. The utmost endeavors only caused it to revolve in a circle, while all the time the planks, borne on the bosom of the current, had been impaled swiftly down the fast-flowing river. In the meantime, the violence of the eddying stream had commenced to dash the raft to pieces. Several large timbers becoming loosened and detached floated away, and in a few minutes the whole thing would go to wreck. Not far off were the lights of the blockhouse at Monacassi, 
toward which the fast crumbling raft was hurrying with frightful velocity in five minutes if the boards could hold together so long it would be caught under the arches of the bridge below such paddling was never witnessed on the potomac and it was only by intense physical exertion that i succeeded in returning to the shore which had just been left and not one minute too soon jumping on shore i gave the cursed old concern a spiteful kick which caused it to shoot far out into the stream it dashed down the river and disappeared in the gloom in far deeper gloom i walked back to the canal boat too miserable to speak and sat for some time incapable even of thinking after all i had gone through it was hard very hard to wind up at the same point from which i started only worse off tragedy and comedy are inseparably linked together and as woe-begone as i was i thought of a story i had heard and burst into hysterical laughter dick martin told it to me one night in camp and said it was frozen truth it was down in the northern neck in virginia the summer before the war a neighbor had an old razorback sow which used to raise a plentiful lot of pigs every year and when these young porkers were large enough to follow her she would break in his cornfield despite fence or stone wall if she could not squeeze through a panel of the fence she would root a hole in the wall and once in would play havoc with the growing crop there was one particular spot in the stone wall through which she was accustomed to make her entrance and her exit often would the farmer fill up the aperture only to find that the hog with her long snout had mined her way through on the very next day he stood this until as mark twain would say it became monotonous so he sought a hollow log in the shape of a u with which he stopped the hole both ends opening of course on the highway it was a very warm day that i chanced to be travelling along the road and rested for a moment under the shade of a large tree near by in the few minutes i saw a tall gaunt female swine with a whole brood of pigs making her way with driver's grunts of satisfaction toward the cornfield advancing as if she had not a second to lose to her special aperture in she went as if it were an accustomed runway her whole family at her heels in the shortest space of time she emerged but instead of finding herself among the succulent corn stalks she had struck the dusty turnpike if ever a hog was puzzled she was however after giving her head a wise shake she essayed the trip again and once more reappeared on the same side of the fence the old sow was posed and staggered for nice as her brains would have been in a frying pan they were not equal to the situation her little eyes blinked her little rat tail wiggled and she grunted her perplexity to her noisy offspring making a detour and taking the bearings so as to be sure she was right this time she confidently made her third trial she passed in at the hollow log and came out as she had entered but no sooner had she emerged the third time with the same result then casting a horrified look around she gave a frightened squeal and set off down the road as if the devil were after her and so i felt like that old sow i had gone into the hole yonder was the cornfield i had hoped to reach and i found myself just where i started nearly frozen half starved wholly demoralized i sat there on the towpath wondering what in this world of sorrows i was to do next i must go to some house get something to eat and some sleep then pick the flint and try again it was a dim misty night a sudden wind had risen filling the sky with floating clouds and chilling the blood of any half-clothed unfortunate who walked the earth 
I kept on and had hardly gone two miles when suddenly there came the quick, sharp challenge. Halt! In the dim light a squad of men could be seen, and the glint of the musket barrel showed who they were. I felt like Samson when the Philistines got him the second time. End of chapter 11